Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Alan Ropper and Brian David Burrell will join us to discuss how the brain lost its mind. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, our understanding of mental illness is intertwined with two competing concepts of brain and mind. But is this division necessary or even problematic? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Alan Ropper and Brian David Burrell. Dr. Ropper is a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and the Raymond D. Adams Master Clinician of the Department of Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Brian David Burrell is a member of the mathematics faculty at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Teacher and writer, he's authored several books, including Postcards from the Brain Museum and a previous collaboration with Dr. Ropper entitled Reaching Down the Rabbit Hole. Together, they've penned the new book, How the Brain Lost Its Mind, Sex, Hysteria, and the riddle of mental illness. And Dr. Ropper, Mr. Burrell, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Certainly a, f- a fascinating book. Continues a collaboration that you previously released entitled Reaching Down the Rabbit Hole. Which I- I'm curious how you two came together and decided to write these books. It all came about uh, because of my previous solo book. It was called Postcards from the Brain Museum. And that came about in kind of an indirect way As a teacher of math, I frequently run into students who just tell me that they don't have a brain for mathematics. And unfortunately, about 20 years ago, an article about Einstein's brain came out saying that he had a brain that was particularly suited for math and physics. And I decided I needed to look into this because it didn't sound quite right to me. And it turned out not to be quite right. But it also led me to find a whole series of brain collections around the world, collections of so-called elite brains. And I wrote a book about it, which came out about 15 years ago. That actually led to an invitation from the neurology group at Brigham and Women's Hospital. In fact, they were having a book club meeting at Alan's house. And that's where we met. And from there, Alan invited me to the hospital behind the scenes to take a look around to see the world of clinical neurology. So that's how our first collaboration came about. And Dr. Rob Wiggs out of it. Well, you know, I had a notion that people didn't understand truly at a, at a sort of frontline level what neurologists and psychiatrists did. And I thought that it would be an opportunity to write a book. So I wanted Brian to give an outside perspective, and he already had a basis in this brain science field. So I was angling for it, so to speak, but it came together really nicely. We spent a lot of time in the hospital, made recordings, and uh, that led to our first book. And it's a natural progression to this book, although the two are quite different because this is really about our ideas about the mind and the brain. The first one was a little bit more autobiographical. And the current book is very fascinating in the sense that it's exploring this dual concept, brain and mind. How is this division established and why is it problematic in our understanding of mental illness? Well, two curious things happened. The first is that psychiatry didn't really exist in full form until 
syphilis of the brain came along, neurosyphilis, in the uh, late 1900s, early part of the last century. And it gave a structural or damaged form of insanity to put psychiatry into medicine, into general medicine. And that's sort of curious because you'd think that the disease like syphilis of the brain would be neurological. And at the same time, hysteria was rampant. These two things were running in parallel. And it was taken up by a man considered the greatest neurologist of all time, Charcot in Paris. But he thought that hysteria was a brain disease, much like epilepsy. And these two polar opposites paradoxically got something that is probably a psychological or call it mental problem as part of neurology. And it still pretty much is. And neurosyphilis, syphilis of the brain, is part of psychiatry. And we're still stuck with this idea that everything we now call mental illness will have a basis in brain disease. It's sort of the goal of modern neuroscience very reductionist. And this book was an attempt to explore whether that is a good idea and makes sense. And we sort of conclude that it isn't. That while you certainly can't have a mind if you don't have a brain, they don't seem to follow the same rules. And uh, if you knew absolutely everything about the brain, you probably would not understand the mind. That's the tension we're dealing with in this book. And Mr. Burrell, he says, well, first of all, you know, when Alan first proposed this idea, he said, let's write a book about neurosyphilis. I didn't know what it was. My expertise, at least in, in terms of the books I've done in the past, is largely in history of science. And so going back and investigating neurosyphilis, initially we didn't have hysteria in them. You know, we thought we would write a book about this brain disease. But if you go back into the 19th century, you realize that there was the phenomenon of madness was multifaceted, and part of it was completely unknown in the sense that it wasn't understood what role syphilis played in insanity. You know, syphilis had been around at least in Europe since the time of Columbus, or at least his return from his voyages, and it was only in the 19th century that, that this particular form of advanced syphilis, where it had attacked the brain, began to show up in rather large numbers. It was a mystery to everyone. And at the same time, you had patients showing up in asylums who were suffering from purely psychological problems. So I realized we had an interesting juxtaposition there, the idea of a brain disease versus a mind disease, and the struggle to figure out which one was which, really. I mean, it really took quite a while, but it brought in all kinds of history. You know, basically, we, Freud comes into the mix, mesmerism, hypnotism, and the story really brings us right up through the, the modern era of psychopharmaceuticals. And the interesting thing about it to me is that when you look back 150 years, we're still facing the same questions. We know a bit more about the science. We know about neurosyphilis now. But this issue of mind versus brain, what is the nature of mental illness? Is such a thing possible, a purely mental illness, not an illness of the body? So that's, that's where the, the story took us. And in many ways, the neurosyphilis story has a more satisfying conclusion. There's, there's something tangible, physical to, to point to. But hysteria, mental illness, seeming catch-all, really, for all kinds of different types of mental illness. And there's this idea that they should all have some kind of organic basis. Well, we have a problem in that things we think of as hard mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, to take an example, 
or an illness like Tourette's syndrome, very complex business, the brains of those people are normal. And so the case was made by the gadfly Thomas Zaz that how can you call this mental illness? There's nothing to show for it. Of course, the presumption is that with advancing science, illnesses like that will be explained. But at the moment, right now, we're fabricating things as we go along, all from reasoning backwards. So, for example, if somebody is depressed and you give them a certain drug, that drug seemingly makes them better. It acts on a certain chemical system. And so, as you know, we reason that, oh, well, that chemical system must be wrong. That's a little too easy. And furthermore, that chemical system is a moving target. 25 years ago, it was one chemical. 15 years ago, it was another. Five years ago, it was another. And now it's yet another, GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid. So we have a problem in that we just aren't sure where the boundaries of mental illness are. And this problem arose 200 years ago. We're actually not that much farther along right now. And when it comes to things that are in the shadows, call uh, things like PTSD, addiction, even maybe autism, or uh, alcoholism, so on, criminality, sociopathy. Current thought is, well, there's something wrong with the brain. The brain made me do it. And it's just not that clear. That's a secular trend. That idea, though, was put down 150, 200 years ago, hasn't really changed. And our premise is that if you understood everything about the brain, it's a laudable goal, you probably would not understand the mind. And you might not fully comprehend some of these syndromes in particular that fall between identifiable, hard psychiatric mental illness and all the other things that seemingly in part flow from the problems of life. So that's really where we are and we're back where we started in my view. Well, then the question then is, if, if not the brain, when, where then is the mind? Well, the mind is in the brain, but, you know, the brain has its own set of rules, electrically, chemically, connections, and so on. But it, pro it provides a platform for the mind. And the idea that an idea that you come up with has a tangible representation, as if you could weigh it, is probably misguided. The brain has one set of rules. The mind has another. Sigmund Freud slips into the gap there and provides a system and of course, there are many others since, for understanding the mind, the psychology of both normal, our, our normal internal conversation, the one we're having all the time with ourselves, and disordered internal conversations. You know, the issue comes up about the recent shootings and the attribution of them to mental illness. Well, yeah, what is mental illness? How are those people mentally ill? They're certainly way, way out of the norm and in a really ugly way. But to call it mental illness in the modern era presumes that there is a basis for it in the brain or even in some kind of backstory of the patient's life. And it's not that simple. Certainly it has implications for culpability and the law of whether or not someone can be held accountable for their own actions. Absolutely. I mean, there are people who have no insight at all into what they're doing, and there are people who can't test reality. Those two things are a little different. I don't know, you know, if we're qualified to go there, but I think that it deserves a careful look. And the ideas that got us where we are are very important in understanding what we're doing in the, in the modern era. What would you suggest that would be the correct approach to establishing it? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's with reluctance that I say Freud got a lot right 
we may not like some of the peculiarities of uh, the connections and system he produced, but he was on to something very important insofar as there, if you can get yourself into a jam mentally, you probably can get out of it mentally. That's number one. Number two, the idea that it's in the brain destigmatizes it and, as you said, reduces an individual's culpability. But I think it's possible to deal with mental illness without that stigma and culpability and just view it as a derangement of the stream of thought of the way people incorporate their experiences. That, of course, is what psychiatry used to do in large part until it shifted predominantly to psychopharmacology. On the neurology side, some of my colleagues, and we discuss this at length in the book, are persuaded that the softer parts of character disorders, criminality, sociopathy, are going to be explained by brain science in the same way that a stroke causes paralysis. They're onto looking at places in the brain that seem to be at the nexus or place where people with these particular disorders converge and therefore it's caused by a problem in that location in the brain. That's as extreme a view to me as thinking everything can be fixed by the talking cure. I don't think schizophrenia can be fixed by the talking cure. So both neurology and psychiatry, based on the original sin of psychiatry getting neurosyphilis and neurology getting hysteria, which is a paradox, have gone out uh, to the extremes of those idioms. And it, it's really, I think, holding us up creating societal ideas that might be misguided. So, for example, while I'm not saying categorically that there's no basis for it, addiction is clearly thought of, I think, in society as an illness, as a disease. Now, there are elemental truths to that, but that, by the way, harkens back to an old idea of degeneration, that it's, you know, your genes made you do it and your family. Well, it could be partly a learned behavior, and that doesn't mean that somebody is blameworthy, that it's their fault. Hysteria. People do the most peculiar things, like Maria Teresa von Paradis, who we talk about in the book, The Hysterical Blind Girl, who Mesmer tried to cure. Well, hysteria, I'm not sure that people who are displaying these bizarre symptoms that are fabricated by the mind know they're doing it or should be blamed for it. Certainly, there are people who do it purposefully to get out of jail or get out of army or something, but it's possible to dissociate those things. So I'm looking for psychiatry and neurology and society to come a little more toward the middle and to acknowledge that we really don't know a lot about what's going on in the mind or the brain. Probably a little bit of hubris on both sides. Others have said so, yeah. Maybe as a final word from both of you, what would you like readers to take from the book? Uh, for, for my part, I'd like them to know that the things we're grappling with today that we call mental illness, and many of which are societal problems, were around 200 years ago, and that the advances that have been claimed are a little bit overblown. We should take a more careful look, be a little bit less judgmental about the people who suffer with these disorders. And I would like them to take away the idea that there was, uh, and still is, this disease, neurosyphilis, not very well understood today, largely forgotten, but it was a very elemental aspect of society and culture in the 19th century, early 20th century, and they solved it. What was first thought to maybe be hysterical, driving people mad, it turned out to be a brain disease, a germ-borne brain disease, sexually transmitted, and 
it did basically give people the idea that all mental illness would, would eventually turn out to be identifiable to some cause, and that hasn't quite panned out. But it's worth revisiting the history of that disease, a fascinating history, and it does tell us a lot about um, how we view mental illness today. And Dr. Lee, if I could add a tagline, syphilis is spiked. It's on the rise again. And where you are, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, third in the country in rates of syphilis. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's forgotten but not gone. We were just talking with Dr. Alan Roper and Dr. Brian David Worrell. They're the authors of the new book, How the Brain Lost Its Mind, Sex, Hysteria, and the Riddle of Mental Illness. And uh, Dr. Rupp and Mr. Burrell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Bye.